Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 17th, 2020. This is episode 2642 of the Survival Podcast, and it is a Friday, so it's time for an expert counsel Q&A show. Um, since I've skipped a few, I've got a lot on the docket for you. It's seven expert council segments, I think. One, two, three, four, four, five, six, seven, seven, seven members of the council for you. And a good quote of the day. And then I've got some bad good news. It sounds bad, but it's really good. They're spinning it bad, but it's really, 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 really good news about COVID. It, uh, also makes us really have to question the sanity of everything that we've done with shutting down our economy the way that we have. I've always said that there were parts of it that were stupid, but this just really, really makes it maybe dumber than a box of rocks. Stupid level. Special kind of stupid. Uh, stupidity. And, uh, and yet, I don't think we should have done nothing. I don't think that was smart either. And we'll talk a little bit about how that relates to, uh, things with Sweden, for instance. Uh, there's a lot of people that, want us to just basically not do anything, and they're holding up Sweden as an example. Sweden's done some things, but not much. But I'm going to tell you what it would look like if we took the same population numbers of Sweden into the United States, how many more people would be dead right now if we were following their path. Just It's, it's an interesting thing to look at. Uh, but, yeah, I've got some really good news and a case for doing less for sure. Uh, which goes along pretty well with some of the president's recommendations for reopening the economy. And we'll get to that right away, but let's start off with uh, something that's kind of based on that. I, I tried to get a quote today that will tie into my segment at the end, my anchor segment. This is by Plato. Plato said a good decision is based on knowledge, not on numbers. That may seem confusing, but I want to try to make it clear because we're making a lot of decisions based on numbers, There's a few things that go wrong when you make decisions based on numbers alone. Number one, are the numbers right? I'm not going to talk about that much right now. I'm going to leave that for my anchor segment. Are the numbers that you're using and making your decision correct? That's a really important part of it. And then you'd have the knowledge of the accuracy of the numbers. So right there, that should make a good decision based on knowledge and not numbers. Really clear. But you have to have more knowledge than just the numbers. Let's say that you were in, back in, in, in early pre-medieval times even, in the worlds of the city-state, where one uh, city, town, state would maybe invade another. And there was this was what you knew, or at least you thought you know, the estimates were, that the city is about to be invaded. And if you fight, 1,500 of your people will die in the battle. Or you can surrender. If you just made a decision based on the fact that 1,500 lives lost is terrible, then it would seem like surrender would be the option. But what do you know of this invading force? What do they do once they take over? Do they kill everybody and just take the resources? Well, there's one piece of knowledge that's kind of important. Do they kill all the men of fighting age? which would be the people doing your fighting anyway. That would be another, because that's something that was done. 
at the time in these types of battles and, and what have you. They'd come in and like if you were a male and you were under or over a certain age, they spared you. And if you were a prime fighter, someone that could be a problem, they killed you. But everybody else got to live. Is it the case that if you fight, they'll kill everybody, but if you don't fight, they'll only kill your men of fighting age? How many men of fighting age do you have? See, all of these things are important. And then the most important number is, of those 1,500, how big is your city-state? Do you have 2,500 people? That's more than half of your population. Or are you a city of 100,000? And is it worth those 1,500 lives to not be conquered? And what does the consequences of being conquered look like? See, one of the things we're doing with this coronavirus is we're reacting to a raw number without an understanding of the totality of the picture and without an understanding of, well, what are the consequences of what we're doing? Even if we accept the numbers at face value, if we don't do these things, then this many more people will die because a certain number of people are going to die every day of all types of causes. But if we even narrow it down to COVID, There's a certain number of people that are going to die of this no matter what we do. How many we can save versus what are the consequences is really important. And I don't think most people screaming right now and screeching it want us to stay locked down, even have a, a, an inkling of an understanding of the consequences of shutting down a global economy and the national economy. They don't get it. I'm getting my money. Trump sent me a check. And I get my unemployment. And then the federal government's giving me more money than I was making before, so I'm sitting at home completely safe, at least in my mind, and I'm okay. So if we have to stay this way for 18 months, then I don't want to die. And they, these are people that are, we know the majority of Americans are economically illiterate. These are the people making decisions right now. The people making decisions right now Even the people that are health professionals that are part of these decisions are generally economically illiterate. You have to have economic literacy combined with medical literacy and a firm grasp on reality. And if we're going to use numbers, we better have knowledge of how accurate those numbers are. And we better know about the numbers that we don't know about. And we better be making good estimates about those. Keep that in mind. For today's segment, where I'm going to play a report for you on from from a, a news station in Boston, and when I shared it on Facebook, I said, "If you've had your life massively disrupted, lost a business, what have you, by these shutdowns, when you read the third paragraph, your jaw will hit the floor." Several people said that's exactly what happened. We'll get to that in a minute. Before we do, we'll get to that in about oh about an hour. Because uh, we got a lot of great stuff for you. Let's start out with uh, John Pugliano. I know you're thinking he's not talking about the economic impacts of COVID or divesting yourself of unnecessary risk. No, no. I bet a lot of you didn't know this. John Pugliano is a ham radio operator in addition to a financial advisor and investment manager. And he's going to talk today about nothing to do with investing except maybe investing in something like ham radio. Kip, getting started with ham radio with John Pugliano in our lead-off story. Hey, TSP, this week I'm going to take a break from talking about the stock market and finances, and instead I want to talk about something that I think is relevant while you're sitting at home, sheltering in place, and that's finding a hobby that develops a series of skill sets. 
Now, I personally have a lot of hobbies, and, and they're diverse. You know, everything from, you know, reloading to gardening, which is one of the reasons that I really enjoy listening to Jack and participating in the TSP community. Uh, but one of my other really favorite hobbies is amateur radio, as better known as ham radio. And I'll often receive a lot of questions from TSP listeners about getting started in ham radio. You know, the great part about ham radio is that it's not only a hobby, it's also a service. So you can use it for emergency communications, or you can use it not only to communicate as a hobby, but to learn other ancillary topics that are valuable skills. Things like basic electricity and electronics, kit building. I mean, the hobby can take you anywhere. You've heard Jack talk about acquiring 13 skills. You could easily find 13 skills to develop that are not only educational, but they're also a lot of fun. But the big question is where you get started. And so I think before you should even think about getting a ham radio license or which radio to buy, you know, a lot of people are always asking, should they start out with some kind of a cheap Chinese Beofang radio or should they jump right into a high frequency 100 watt rig or maybe a QRP low power radio? Listen, before you think about any of that, I'd encourage you to just explore the hobby. What are you interested in? What kind of skills would you like to develop? Approach it from that standpoint And then you'll avoid the mistake that a lot of people do, which is they just go out, they get their technician license, they buy a cheap Chinese radio, and then it sits on the shelf and they never use it. The other things about radio and technology and getting started in the hobby is that ham radio is, is so fascinating because it's really a blending and a mix of old technology with new technology. If you came into my ham shack, you'd find an old classic Heathkit vacuum tube radio And sitting right next to it is a state-of-the-art software-defined radio. They both serve a purpose, and I enjoy using both of them. But you may not. You may be interested in something completely different. So that's why I think it's really important that you do some homework before you just jump into the hobby. The basic way to research ham radio is the way you'd research anything else. Go out and do some Google searches and watch YouTube videos and jump on Facebook and join some of the user groups and forums that are out there. And just to point you in, in the direction and show you how vast the hobby is and the variety of different topics that are out there, let me just point you in the direction of a few Facebook groups. If you're interested in learning more about just general radio operation and maybe getting into building some kits and some electronic projects, then I'd encourage you to check out the Ham Radio Workbench Podcast. They have a Facebook group as well as the podcast. These guys are friends of mine, and George and Jeremy in every episode cover a variety of topics, everything from you know general radio theory, how to build basic projects. They have kits that you can order from time to time that teach you how to solder and put together discrete components. They talk about using software to design your own printed circuit board and actually having it sent off to a company that will print the circuit board for you, um, You know how to use an oscilloscope. They just cover a wide variety of topics. I'd encourage you to give that a try. Another aspect of the hobby that I really enjoy is building antennas. And so if you're interested in learning about how to build an efficient radio antenna, then check out the Facebook group, which is appropriately entitled Making Antennas for Amateur Radio. And, hey, what if you want to do something more exotic than that? Well, there's a Facebook group called Earth, Moon, Earth Radio Communications. And that's where they use ham radio to bounce their signals off the moon or off a meteor scatter and communicate with somebody on the other side of the Earth. Well, hey, what if you want to get more in your local community and support projects and emergency communications? Well, check out the Facebook group, 
RACES. That's Radio Amateur Civil Emergency Service. How about if you want to get out of your ham shack and you want to go out and use a radio while you're backpacking or hiking? Well, there are small radios that are called QRP. That's low power, generally using five watts or less. You can buy those radios commercially. You can build your own kit. To get started in that, check out the Facebook group, Amateur QRP Radio. Another way to go portable with your radio and get out of the ham shack is to be a storm chaser, and you can check out their Facebook group at Skywarn. Well, what if you want to get into something more high-tech and you want to do digital modes or learning how to program microprocessors that can work remotely or work with other radio-controlled devices, you know, things like Raspberry Pis and Arduinos? Well, there's a Facebook group for that called Arduino and ARM Ham Radio Projects. And if that's too high-tech for you and you want to get more into hands-on restoring of old classic radios, well, check out the user groups that are out there for the old classic radios like Heathkit or Collins. And speaking of classic and traditional type radio, if you're like me and you're fascinated with Morse code, well, the CW Academy has a Facebook group that tells you all about the free courses that they offer. And one of my favorite groups for learning Morse code is the Long Island CW Club. Check those guys out and tell my friend Howard I said hi. Now, over these past couple minutes, I just try to throw out a lot of ideas out there, point you in a direction, and give you an idea how broad and how vast the ham radio hobby is. So go out there, do some research, find out what you might be interested in, and then meet some people and get an Elmer and dig into the hobby. Who knows, you may even hear me out there. Well, hey, as always, thanks for your questions. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. Uh, next up, we have Keith Snow. Keith was a official member of the Expert Council for about six years, and he stepped away from it about uh, a little less than a year ago because he went back to having a, a job. He got a really great offer to do some really cool stuff. But now, like many people in the food industry, he's sitting at home and thought maybe he'd throw in some content for us. And uh, this is on making a sourdough starter. Hey, Jeff Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. Wanted to address Samantha with a question about sourdough. Seems like uh, I've been home like most people, and I've been baking up a ton of bread and uh, using sourdough. And I had no idea that the Internet was going absolutely insane with sourdough, and then I started seeing things pop up all over Instagram, and uh, Samantha emailed me from upstate New York wondering how to make a starter. Now, this is a very simple thing to do, but you'll need just a couple of uh, inexpensive pieces of equipment. Number one is a kitchen scale that can measure grams. Also, you need about a three-quarter of a liter jar. Um, I use these French canning jars, but Anything will really work. I mean, even if you just put saran wrap and a rubber band over it, but you want something about three quarters of a liter. And what you're going to do is start with um, 200 grams of water. And that needs to be filtered water. You don't want to use water with chlorine in it, um, i.e. city water. And the next ingredient is going to be almost the exact amount, 200 grams of flour. Now, it really depends on what type of bread that you're planning on making, but you can make a sourdough starter with just about any flour. I've had great success with um, rye flour, with whole wheat flour, with bread flour, and certainly with AP flour. My favorite would probably be using whole wheat flour. So what you do is mix together um, 
200 grams of each of those and give it a stir. You'll cover it. And remember that when you're making something like this, it's going to be creating uh, gas. So as the uh, action of the starter starts to happen, it will off-gas a bit. And that's why you don't want something that's sealed very tightly. So you want something at work and, um, you know, off-gas easily. So... Just uh, it, even if you use a piece of saran wrap and just take a knife and poke a teeny hole in the top, that will do it. So what you're going to do is the first four days, you're going to feed this thing once a day. And that means you're going to open it up. And this kind of goes against conventional wisdom. But after, let's say you start at noon. So you put it in there, you feed it. The next day at noon, take it out. And you're going to dump out all but about a quarter of what's in the jar. Just get rid of it. And then you're going to go ahead and give it another feeding. And you're going to feed it with 200 grams of flour, 200 grams of water. Mix it up really well. You don't want clumps of um, unmixed flour in there, so try to mix it well. And then you're going to do the same thing on day two and on day three. And on day four, you're going to feed it twice. So let's say you'll do it, I don't know, noontime and six at night. So you'll do... Three days of one feeding, then you're going to do uh, three days of two feedings, and by then you should be ready to make bread. And you'll start to see as the days go by, you'll see a lot of bubbles, and um, you can just take a little marker or a piece of tape and at the level of what's in the jar when you get done mixing, and then you'll see it rise up and grow. Now, after about the third or fourth day, instead of throwing out the starter, start to accumulate it in the freezer. So what we call spent starter, just pour it out into a glass container or whatever and put it in, did I say freezer? I meant refrigerator. <laughs> put it in the refrigerator. And uh, I'll cue you guys up for an episode that's going to happen on harvest eating coming up very soon, which is going to be talking about making sourdough pancakes. So that spent starter from like day three or four on that has some activity in it is magic for making amazing, probably the best pancakes kicks ever. So you'll feed this thing like I just described, and you'll want to do at least three days of doing two feedings a day. And at that point, you should have a very active starter, one that, you know, like I made bread just the other day, and I had about an eh, inch and a half of um, when I mix it all together, and it settled about an inch and a half. And this is a, you know, three quarters of a liter jar. Within three or four hours, it was coming over the top. That's how much activity I had. So I bake lots of different breads, but uh, for my kids, I'll bake a Pullman loaf. So I'll do a sourdough Pullman loaf, which is just awesome. Cook it at about 450 degrees. It gets a nice crust on it. And then, as a matter of fact, just tonight, I pulled two sourdough cinnamon raisin breads out. And those are made using a couche and a, a banatone or a banaton, whatever you want to call it. And that's for shaping your bread. I believe it is just called banaton. You can get those on the internet. But anyway, that is how you start a sourdough starter. That's how you get it going. That's how you feed it. And even if it just sits in the refrigerator, um, when you're done making bread, you're probably going to use, and I'm going to give a recipe on an upcoming episode to make bread, but you'll probably use about 150 grams of starter to make two loaves. So you'll have some left over in the fridge and you just start feeding it again and it'll come back to life in, in a couple of days. Uh, I'm, I'm having it where I take it out of the fridge. It can be in there a day or two and I'll feed it twice and it'll be ready to go. So uh, sourdough is a fun thing to do, folks. And uh, we all have a lot of time on our hands. So why not learn how to make bread without having to use um, 
manufactured yeast because sourdough bread has a lot more character, the texture, the aroma, everything is wonderful. So, Samantha, I hope that helps. I want to encourage everyone to check out foodstoragefeast.com. Um, folks that are MSB members, you get a $70 discount. Just go into the members section and um, you'll find the coupon code there. And then all you regular listeners get $50 off by using the coupon code JACK at foodstoragefeast.com. And that course will show you lots of different ways to use what we would call stored foods. So with that, Jack, thanks so much, everybody. Have a great weekend. Take care. Next up, can honey go bad, especially canned honey? I know what you're thinking. No. But maybe it can, because maybe it ain't all honey. Michael Jordan will talk to us about that. Hello, this is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company in Cheyenne, Wyoming, taking your questions on mead, apiary management, and the making of mead. I've got a question from Chad, and I loved how you signed the end of your thing from San Francisco. <laughs> that, was, that was really good. But it says, hello, Jack, i got a question for the bee whisperer. I'm going through long-term storage food and found a number 10 can of honey. The cans have bulged out on the top and bottom. The honey has an off odor and is much darker than usual. It says 100% pure raw honey, uncooked honey. And then you gave me the name brand. I'm not going to mention the name brand. Uh, Jack can mention it if he wants to in, in this program, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to, to bash anybody or say anything. And it says stored in a cool, dark area for eight years or so. So you have a few cans of number 10 cans of honey that you've stored for eight years or so. And you said, any thoughts on it? And I'm going to let you know, man, that uh, the brand that you're mentioning, um, it says that it's harvested from the U.S., Vietnam, and Thailand. And um, I'm going to tell you, things that come from Vietnam and Thailand are bad. They often mix unknown sugary substances from China to make uh, fake wild honey and sell it for uh, large profits. And it's uh, the story circulating a, a long time ago about Vietnam and uh, how they, they man, they, they, they do these big hunts for honey and show all this stuff, but the demand is so great that they're, they're bottling down some fake honey to it. So your cans are bulged. Um, there's some stuff that I'm going to tell you about. Is your honey fake or not? And what has happened is your cans have been sitting in a cool area in, in the bottom, and some of the honey has got a little bit of pollen in it, and some of it is just sugary base. And um, what has happened is it's kind of fermented in that can, and it's made it pop. And it's not going to be any good unless you want to take the whole honey and ferment it completely out, making alcohol. Uh, but I'm going to let you know that there's some good things to try to test for your honey and honey can go bad. And, um, there's some things that go with it. Um, what has happened is you've got a bad batch and there's a couple ways that I'm going to tell you how to test for it is that if you take a glass of water, and you take a spoonful of honey and you drop it in and it doesn't just sink to the bottom of the water or the glob, you have problems. 
that uh, honey just does not dissolve in water. It has to be mixed uh, vigorously to break it apart, the sugar compound, in water. So most of the time, like, you can take honey and you can drop it on uh, a paper towel and run some water over it. And the honey's still going to stay in a glob on, on top of the paper towel. Or if you're like, you can just take a spoon of it and stick it on the bottom of your stainless steel sink. And you can run some water and you'll notice that the globules will just stay on the bottom of the sink. Because it's not breaking apart. Now, there are some things that uh, you can do with bad honey. Like I said, you can uh, ferment it all out. Just take it all out. Throw it in a fermenter mix it all up and stuff but it's been sitting for eight years man i wouldn't taste it uh you know uh some people say we'll taste it see what it tastes like uh, you know i i personally wouldn't taste anything um a small amount of honey that that sounds good can be some can consumed and you get uh it's called gray anoxin it's a content that was very effective to your to your body it can get you sick um, particularly in raw honey, it contains various particles of pollen that can make this happen in your stomach. Uh, it can cause uh, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, weakness, uh, all kinds of stuff in your arms and legs and stuff. So I, I wouldn't taste anything that you're not sure of, of what it is. And, uh, you know, I, man, you need to find a local beekeeper. And I'm not really big on number 10 can storing of honey. I don't like the metal taste in my honey. You know, if you powder it out, uh, if you boil the honey and then pour it in a pan and let it harden out into a hard candy and then grind it all up, you're going to get a sugar, a sugar out of it. It's going to, you know, it's going to be the hard candy that you broke down and ground down into a powder. And that's powdered honey. You can just add water to it or we make what we call boss bacon and you just sprinkle that powdered honey on bacon, a little bit of chili pepper on top of it and it's, caramelized sweetness with hotness and it's super good we call it boss bacon but if, if if you're if you're looking to get honey uh if you can go to a beekeeper you respect it's one of the big things i can always tell you but i'm not i'm not i'm not going to bash any company or anything everybody's out to make a little bit of profit and especially in this time but uh, really read the cans and the labels you want you know if you're mead making who cares i mean you can get it from Brazil or uh, other places that, you know, I don't really care because you're using it to make alcohol with. But to have a fine, good honey product, it's not going to come out of a number 10 can. Long-term storage, right? Honey never goes bad ever. So I wouldn't put it in a can for any kind of metal taste. Just just my opinion. Uh, I mean, like I said, I don't want to say anything about any, anybody's company because I don't, I don't want to fight with anything but i wouldn't get it in a metal can uh, if your honey should be in a plastic container uh, you can pour it all in a milk jug i have a friend uh, that pours all his he orders actually big uh liter bottles that actually vodka comes in and he just puts it in there and that way you can take the lid off of it and stick it in boiling water and it becomes liquidy and it's easier for him to pour to use when he does his honey it's easier for him to store um, but never in a, never in a metal can. Um, I'm sorry that your food storage, you, you had a bad product, but man, I, I wouldn't taste it. I wouldn't eat it. I wouldn't mess with it. 
read your labels tremendously. I mean, you can look up uh, a couple things on how you can test your honey to see if it goes bad or if it expires. But, you know, there's there's several things that you can do to, to test it. There's uh, heat treatments. There's vinegar. I mean, uh, like the, the coolest one's the thumb test, I guess, is what what's what they call it. Just place a small amount of honey on your thumb and check to see if it spills and spreads like any other liquid. If it does, it's not pure. Pure honey will be thick. Uh, it'll stick to the, you know, your thumb. It won't want to move or, or do anything. The water test, like I said, take a teaspoon of honey and put it in a glass of water. Fake honey or altered honey will dissolve in the water. Well, pure honey will just kind of dense texture will sit right at the bottom of the glass in lumps. And this is kind of how you can tell if you've got good raw honey or not on it. You know, there's flame test. There's using vinegar. Uh, you can heat it and see if it becomes foamy as, as you heat it. Um, you know, so there's ways to test your honey right there to see if you've got a good raw product. Uh, crystallization is different than honey going raw or, I mean, like rancid. Um, so I would just, uh, man, I, f I feel so bad about this because one thing I always tell you is get the honey from a beekeeper you can respect, man. And I feel, I feel bad that you got a, a, an inferior product. It makes, it makes all those other beekeepers look bad. And especially when from, when you're buying it from a source that you're getting it in, in, in a large amount of number 10 cans, quite a bit of honey. And so I, you know, and, and for the, you know, the price. I just feel really bad. You know, you got to watch out to see if it's if it's uh, sugared honey, right? There there are some things that uh, that people do to make the honey go as bad as it can. But that's the best thing I can tell for you is that it's not good. Get rid of it. Uh, pour it in your garden. Let the microbials eat it because it's a sugar content and stuff, and you'll be good. But don't eat it. Uh, buy your honey from a beekeeper. You kind of know. It stores honey never goes bad. You can put it in containers and it's never going to go bad. So you can use any container you have. Don't get it in a metal can because the taste is usually pretty bad. And, you know, there's a lot of bulk places that you can get five gallon buckets of it. And then you don't have to worry about cans and storage. Just get a five gallon bucket of it and you're ready to go for long term storage. If you want to make it into powder, boil it for at 300 degrees. For a little bit of time until it comes to a rolling boil and pour it in a pan and let it cool down until it's a hard candy. Grind it up, make it into powder. I just gave a, a good business tick for everybody right there. That's what we do. We make powdered honey. It's a great seller and a commodity for people for long-term storage as well as using for baked goods, uh, hams, bacon. It makes a good meat rub. But I just wanted to get that out there. I'm sorry, man, that you had a bad experience with this product and like I said if Jack wants to mention their name that's that's fine with me but uh, I wouldn't buy anything that that wasn't uh, locally made so I'm sorry Chad in San Francisco I appreciate your thoughts but hopefully this will help everybody out to kind of test their honey and let you know some people are getting a bad product so hang in there and uh, keep going on I'm Michael Jordan with AB Friendly Company here in Cheyenne Wyoming doing what I can. Uh, like I said, buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a small cottage industry because you're going to get a better product. And as always, help your fellow man.
because one day you're going to need help too. And right now, the best help you can do is wash your hands and don't touch your face. Thanks a lot for tuning in. All right, next up, I've got somebody that has a spring, and springs are usually a great thing. But if you have a spring in a place that is not optimal for what you're trying to do, it can create a swamp. Uh, it can create a lot of mud. It can create erosion. It can create problems. So what do we do with that spring to channel into taking a problem into a solution? Uh, Jeff Lawton has some thoughts on that. Hi, Jeff. Coming to you from Melbourne Quarantine Hotel. Uh, just less than a week to get back to Zaytuna Farm. And uh, we have a question here coming from Dave. And um, Dave's got a, 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 a spring that overflows its banks and uh, basically creates a swamp and erosion downhill. Um, he's considering whether he could use this. Um, he already pipes it into a pond. Um, he wonders whether he could use a ram pump. Well, you have to have a fall of at least one and a half meters for a ram pump. Um, there is a ram pump, uh, the platypus pump in, pump in Australia that pumps from a half a meter head. Um, but it has a nylon piston that needs replacing every year. Otherwise, there's a Kloschman pump that needs a one and a half meter fall. It's a German pump, uh, more expensive, more sophisticated, but pumps a little bit higher head. But you have to have those falls. To generate electricity, you need a much larger fall to get these small micro hydros to work. Um, and then you don't need a solar system. But if you are a distance from the house, you're going to need some serious cabling, which might restrict the cost. So the further you go from um, the turbine um, or the source of the energy um, creation with electricity, the thicker the copper cable is that you have to take it uh, over distance. So that can be restrictive in cost. Otherwise, um, Dave um, talks about it's causing erosion downhill on the lower side of his hillside. Well, um, we can we can set up a rock riprap um, where we cover the surface of a shallow channel. We excavate a, a shallow dished out channel and, and cover the surface with rock and even stone pitch it and, and cement in between the rocks if we really want to stabilize it. But usually if you're using sort of uh, baseball to, you know, not quite basketball, but, um, you know, the size of, uh, very small footballs, um, or, uh, um, yeah, um, half, half size footballs to large grapefruit type rocks and you, and you, um, lock them all in close together. Uh, the flow over those rocks sort of, um, uh, rattles the water through all the rock. Um, rocked, rocked channel and takes the, uh, pacifies the energy and allows it to, uh, stop the erosion, um, out through the end. Um, you can also level seal the entry point into that rock riprap channel. So it's very passive as it leaves its last exit point downhill away from your property. But the issue really is finding a new use for that water on its way through. Um, so uh, you, you don't have to lose the, uh, the natural marshland type appearance, but you can set up uh, long, um, long, thin, shallow contour ponds. And the thing we're doing, you know, pond, 
productive ponds don't have to be that deep. You don't need more than one and a half meters deep most of the time. Two meters is an absolute maximum on a pond because after that you get a, a, a thermal layer turnover with the different <coughs> heat layers in the pond, heat and cold. But at about one meter, it can still be very, very productive. <coughs> so if you make long contour ponds, you have an incredible amount of edge to the pond, which makes it very productive. Now you've got a flow of water, so your water's already quite oxygenated. So if you set up these long ponds that go as long and as far as they can, obviously it has to be on contour because water only sits on contour, one meter deep, it'd be nice. Then it overflows through a rock riprap, level sill outlet, to a rock riprap into the next pond and then again as long as possible and you repeat that until you get to your final exit point. You could well have a very productive uh, low energy input because you've got the energy with the fall of water aquaculture system. You could have all kinds of aquatic crops and fish species and possibly crustacean species all the way through the system. And really, once you set it up, it'll more or less self-regulate and run itself. And you just uh, make sure you don't over-harvest and get what you need when you need it. Um, I'm quite jealous, actually. Could be could be quite amazing. I mean, I haven't got a lot of information from uh, the question, but uh, um, it sounds quite feasible. And that's definitely the way I'd be designed th- uh, thinking about it. Um, let us know how you go. I thought when I started listening to that that I would I would have something to add that I, I really don't. Um, as he went on to basically developing aquatic systems with this resource, I was like, that's that's what I would do. Of course, um, if you gave me a piece of property of let's say about ten acres, uh, and I could put about five acres into surface water. Uh, you know this whole COVID lockdown self-quarantine thing? That would pretty much become permanent for me forever. I don't know that I would ever leave. Um, yeah, I've got about three acres. If I had about three and a half times as much land and about as much land as I have with surface water on it, now, you, you, I mean, if you saw me in public, something would be going on, I'm telling you, because that's just about as good as it gets for me. Uh, next up, We have one here uh, from Gary Collins. Not really a response to a question, but his fundamental philosophy of the simple life, he calls it the three-legged stool of the simple life. And uh, I was looking for some content about a week ago to make sure I had enough from the EC, and he was good enough to put this segment together for us. So, Gary, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com, where I discuss making your life simpler. Simple as that. Um And today, I want to reiterate and go over the three-legged stool of the simple life. I came up with this uh, over the years and kind of refined it. It's what I have followed. It's what I teach a lot of other people. And not only that, because of how it resonates with people and they grasp the concept and how easy it is. It really is really basic. I actually wrote a short book called the Life Balance, Life Balance Reboot. It's part of the Simple Life series, and I, I realized I needed to get a primer book for people. So that's out there. It's on my website. It's on Amazon. It's only digital right now, and I go into much more detail in the book than we will today, but I want to get people who may not be familiar with my work and who I am just a little taste of what I teach. 
and the first leg of the three-legged stool is finding your optimal health. Uh, we're seeing today this is absolutely critical, and I've been pounding this drum for a very, very long time. For those who have followed me know that I left the government and created a health company. Primarily what I did was health. I still do. It's a huge part of what I teach, and that's why it's uh, the first leg of the three-legged stool. But as we're seeing, you know, with uh, the coronavirus, and there's been many other viruses, it seems we have short-term memory. I mean, a lot, of the, almost all of them come out of China. The worst strains of the flu come out of China every single year for the most part. So our health is critical, and these viruses go after the immune compromised. Well, one of the biggest ways to become immune compromised is to follow the typical American lifestyle of eating 60 to 70 percent of your meals out, a lot of fast food, not exercising, you know, being part of the roughly 70 percent of our population that's overweight or obese. That's immune compromised right there. And I, I pound this again. We are the unhealthiest country in the world, hands down. So this is why your health is so important and why start with this. It literally will it will make the path of everything in your life. So now the second leg is financial freedom by being debt free. And I know that, you know, especially now, again, I've been preparing for a long time, guys. Uh, as all of you who follow me know, I, I'm in my off-grid house now, came up here a couple of days ago, escaped the madness. I live up here during uh, the warmer months. Uh, but it, all this was developed. I own this house. You know, I'm a debt on it. Uh, you know, I live debt-free. I have not lost one sleep, uh, bit of sleep over this thing. It's I'm fine. I put this together. I planned this. It took a while. It doesn't happen overnight. But by being debt free and following all the things I teach, uh, you know, especially in my financial freedom book, I talk about this. You need to have a year of savings. You know, six months is okay. A year. You can weather almost any storm that way. You won't stress out. People are freaking out right now. They're living paycheck to paycheck. They're broke. They're up to their eyeballs in debt. They don't have a way to pay for it. Hey, the way to avoid that, be debt-free. Don't buy things you don't need. Have a year of savings. Easiest way. Um, the third leg is finding your purpose, your life purpose. Why are you here? What, what are your goals? And it all revolves around helping other people. That's why I do what I do. It's plain and simple. I, I Don't get me wrong. Obviously, I need to make a living and do money. I enjoy this. This is what my purpose is. This is what I'm intended to do. And with that, though, it makes my life much more enjoyable. You know, I don't wake up in the morning dreading things. I get up earlier than most Americans. Um, done most of my workday by noon, one o'clock. Uh, you know, it's if you can find that life purpose, it puts you on this journey so different from what the typical American lives today. It really does. I tell people, I'm lucky, man, but I worked for it. This didn't come without sacrifices. And your life purpose will find you. Don't try and force it. But I always look at the things revolves around helping people and something you enjoy. And I know not all the time that will all the time that will feed feed you and your family and pay the bills. But trust me, you can do it. There's there's seven plus billion people in this world. There is something, a service you can provide for someone somewhere and make a living doing it. 
So guys, I hope that helps. Again, I have the Life Balance Reboot book that goes over this. Like I said, it's a it's a primer into what I do and also a reminder. That's why I put it together. And the print version is coming. It's it's coming. Uh, you guys know also I own all my own print. We'll talk about that in the next one. Uh, I'll talk about entrepreneurship and a little bit about that. But I hope you guys enjoy. If you guys want to stay up to date, make sure to sign up for my newsletter. Uh, it's not even really a newsletter. It's the Simple Life Insider Circle. I don't really use social media, so it's the best way to get in touch and stay up to date. Just pound 33777 in a text message and put in your, I'm sorry, better life. Better life. 33 Seven seven seven. Thanks a lot, guys. Next up, we have old Dr. Bones with some uh, thoughts on the concept of sanitizer, making your own sanitizer and alternatives thereof. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net. I'm also the author of the survival medicine handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. And now, Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, all available at Amazon or store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Chad, who writes, Like many people are doing these days, I'm reviewing my preps. Doing so, I found an outdated supply of hand sanitizer. Can I mix it with denatured alcohol and bring it back to life? Some are expired by 10 years. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for all you do. And great books, by the way. They help me pick the right antibiotics for my fish. When I get some someday, <laughs> that's Chad from San Francisco. Very funny, Chad. Chad, many people were surprised to find store shelves empty of hand sanitizer when COVID-19 first made its appearance on our shores. Since alcohol kills SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, there's been a rush on hand sanitizers to the point where store shelves are empty of it, which leaves many families without any hand sanitizer. At home, if you have soap and running water, well, it's not a big deal. But out in public, you should have some available if at all possible. What about if the hand sanitizer you've got is expired, like you say? Any product that's regulated by the Food and Drug Administration is required by law to have an expiration date and lot number. This wasn't always the case. It's only been since 1979 that expiration dates were mandated on drugs and many other products. What is the expiration date? It's the last date that the manufacturer will guarantee full potency and effectiveness of a product. Hand sanitizer needs to be at least 60% alcohol to be effective. It's thought to keep that percentage for two to three years or so of shelf life. Now, that doesn't mean that you'll grow a horn in the middle of your forehead if you use expired hand sanitizer. It's safe to use, but you should know that unsealed sanitizer will lose part of its alcohol content through evaporation over time. If it gets below 60%, it's not as effective. If a bottle hasn't been opened, less of the alcohol will have evaporated. So a freshly opened bottle of hand sanitizer that's past its expiration date is probably pretty effective compared to a bottle that's expired and has been out in the open for a long time. Having said that, the CDC says your go-to should be washing your hands with soap and water and scrubbing for at least 20 seconds per the CDC. That's what they say. Hand washing reduces the amounts of all types of germs and chemicals on hands, but if soap and water are not available, using a hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol can help you avoid getting sick and spreading germs to others. That's the CDC. Many people who use hand sanitizer use it wrong. You have to be certain to cover the front and back of both hands, between the fingers, down to the wrist just about. To do it right, you should be using a good amount of the stuff and let it dry on your hands. A drop on your palm is not going to do the job. 
You need to let it stay wet, by the way, and dry on its own. The time that the alcohol is in contact with your hand matters. It takes at least 60 seconds of wet time for alcohol to kill most germs. If you dry out before then, you might have to use more hand sanitizer. In a pinch, you can make your own hand sanitizer. Hand sanitizer recipes are for use by pros with the necessary resources and expertise. The FDA doesn't want you to make your own. Just go to soap and water. That's what they want. This is because errors in home production of this stuff can irritate your skin, cause inhalation injuries, burns, or not be high enough of a percentage of alcohol to kill all the germs. An associate professor of health sciences at Ball State University did publish an online formula. It combines two parts isopropyl alcohol or ethanol that's 91 to 99% alcohol, one part aloe vera, a few drops of clove, eucalyptus, peppermint, or other essential oil, and notice that I said 99% alcohol. Simple rubbing alcohol is 70%, and when mixed into this formula, would not meet the 60% alcohol requirement for an effective hand sanitizer. The professor goes on to give these tips. Make the hand sanitizer in a clean space. Wipe down countertops with a diluted bleach solution beforehand. Wash your hands thoroughly before making the hand sanitizer. To mix, use a clean spoon and a whisk. Wash these items carefully and thoroughly before using them. Make sure the alcohol used for the hand sanitizer is not diluted. In other words, 99% if you can get it. Mix all the ingredients thoroughly until they're well blended. And do not touch the mixture with your hands until it is ready to use. For a larger batch of hand sanitizer, the World Health Organization has a formula that uses ethanol, 96%, hydrogen peroxide, 3%, glycerin, 98%, and sterile distilled or boiled cold water. What you do is you pour this in a 1,000 milliliter, 1 liter graduated flask, put 833.3 milliliters of ethanol in the flask, 3% hydrogen peroxide, 41.7 milliliters of that, and glycerol, 98%, 14.5 milliliters of that. You top up the flask to 1,000 milliliters with distilled water or water that has been boiled and cooled. Shake the flask gently to mix the content. Your second formulation that the World Health Organization approves pours into the same 1,000 milliliter flask their 99.8% isopropyl alcohol, 751.5 milliliters, 3% hydrogen peroxide, 41.7 milliliters, and glycerol, 98%, 14.5 milliliters. Bottom line, Chad, for now, you can probably use that expired hand sanitizer, especially if it hasn't ever been opened. Don't forget good old soap and water, though. Use that instead whenever you can. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for all your kind words and support and for subscribing to doomandbloom.net. Don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a discount on our medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. I have a couple real quick thoughts about this. Number one, why do we use hand sanitizer in the first place instead of soap and water and, and washing our hands? And the answer is because we, we can't carry a sink around in our pocket. However, we can carry a bottle of water around and some soap. There is no sh soap shortage at all. So keeping something like an extra gallon of water, because there should be water in your vehicle anyway, uh, some soap in a Ziploc bag uh, and, a, and, and towels, would be one way that, you know, you can wash your hands before you go into a store, wash your hands when you come out of the store, don't touch your face while you're in the store. 
That would be one thing. Another thing is, and I know people doing this right now, uh, what's very good at killing coronavirus and just about everything is a 2% bleach solution. So what I know some people are doing is they have basically two bags, and they have a mark so they don't become confused as to which bag is which. And one bag has a wet towel in it that has 2% bleach solution on it. And at the end of the day, you take it home and wash it out and add new bleach solution and put it back in its bag. And the other bag is just a plain water bag to kind of wash your hands off after you have touched the bleach solution so you don't go bleaching your pants and stuff if you touch your pants. Is it a perfect solution? No, but it's better than nothing. And then the last thing I'll add to this is more and more it's seeming like, well, coronavirus can live on cardboard for up to 48 hours. And that's like we put it in a laboratory and give it the perfect optimal conditions and determine that it is still, it ain't, you see, the first thing is it's not alive. It's even weird to call, like, say, kill a virus. A virus without a host can do nothing. It's not really alive. It's more whether it is capable of reproducing or not. Whether it's viable would be a better way to put it. It really isn't a life form the way we think of life forms. It's a weird thing with viruses. So it seems like more and more the data comes out, That it's not you go to the grocery store, somebody touched their face and touched the Oreos, and you got the, or you touched the Oreos, and then you touch your face, and then you got the virus. It is prolonged exposure to an individual close proximity. That is the number one way that this virus is actually spreading. And I also want to point out that even of itself isn't a guarantee. The uh, Diamond Princess cruise ship. Only had about 20% of the people in the ship get infected. Of those, four-fifths were either incredibly mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic. Um, there was another ship where there was a guy on the ship with his wife. They spent the time on the ship. They got off the ship, and he was flying home with her on an airplane, and he started to have symptoms. It turned out he did have COVID, even though they didn't think he had COVID. His wife never got COVID despite being on the ship with him, being sitting next to him on an airplane, sleeping in the same bed with him in a tight cabin. Not every, See, this whole thing that nobody's immune to it is bull. Some people don't get it. And I'll save some more thoughts on that for when we get there, but just understand that it is more close proximity, and I'm not saying not to wash your hands. right? I'm not saying not to use good hygiene. I'm not saying not to use social distancing. But it is close proximity exposure to another individual who is infected. And just think about that when I get to my segment here in just a minute, because I got one more before you hear my segment. Uh, this is on AR Optics from J.R. Helly. Hey, TSP. J.R. here with the Expert Council, answering your questions on guns, gun gear, and all things firearms related. Today's question is from Pierce in Florida. Pierce has a 10.5-inch air pistol with a red dot and is contemplating switching it out for a 1-4 power optic. Purpose of the rifle is an all-arounder from home defense to recreation and hunting hogs. Pierce, this is a great musing and a discussion for everybody in the audience. For everyone listening, let's cover what an AR pistol is versus a regular rifle and a little of the pros and cons of magnified optics versus red dots. An AR pistol is an AR-15 without a stock. That's about, you know, as simple as I can make it. Plenty of you are familiar with the arm brace stocks and the back and forth with the ATF on whether you could add it or if doing so makes you a felon. But it's not 
I'm not going to get into the weeds of that for today's discussion. If you just did a quick look up of the air pistol, you'll see that there's a straight tube that protrudes off the back of the firearm receiver. It might look like a stop from a picture, but it isn't the stock. It's actually where the recoil spring is housed. Without a stock slid over that recoil spring tube and attached to the firearm, this is where we get our classification of it being an AR pistol. And one thing about the pistols too, there isn't a minimum or a maximum classification of barrel length or overall firearm length for a pistol from the ATF. The AR pistol Pierce has is pretty typical length at 10.5 inches, whereas in a rifle format, your standard configurations are going to be 16 inches to 20 inch barrels. So again, no stock on an AR pistol. So you might be thinking, wouldn't a shorter firearm like that lessen its effective range? And you'd be exactly right. So that's where Pierce's kind of dilemma is coming in. And is it really worth it for him to put a magnified optic on an AR pistol when you likely aren't going to be shooting at some of those longer ranges? Here's the thing about magnified optics. What they do is they help you identify and see your target better. It doesn't make you more accurate. Accuracy really comes down to you, the shooter, doing all the things that you need to do to make that shot hit the same place repeatedly, time after time. Yes, the equipment does have inherent accuracy, but for general use, not a specialized use, today's modern firearms placed in a bench vise and just ran mechanically as a machine on a table they're going to be more accurate than about 99% of us in the population. So what I'm getting at is accuracy is more about me and you doing our job than anything else. And a magnified optic really just helps you see something. Not Again, not make you more accurate. Now, a magnified optic also has us usually closing one eye to focus through the optic. At one power... Some of us can get away with not doing that if you have good vision and or your firing hand eyeball is your dominant eye. But if you have astigmatism and or your opposite eye is dominant, being able to keep both eyes open and focus through a magnified optic on, uh, on that reticle, very difficult if not impossible to do at higher magnifications. Whereas we take a red dot, it doesn't necessarily help you see any better, but it helps you get on target quicker versus iron sights or magnified optics. And it's very easy to keep both eyes open when you're doing this, regardless of any stigmatism that you have, because that red dot is just right there in your field of vision. So it's very easy to get on target. So Pierce, would I give you any type of hell for putting a one to four powered magnified optic on an AR pistol? Absolutely not, man. I have a 2 to 7 on a Ruger 1022, which used to have a 3 by 9 by 40 on it. I'm not shooting at things with the 22 at 100 yards away, but I still want that magnification. So I, I get it and I understand it. Sometimes I just want to see better at something small that I'm looking at, especially with 22. My truck gun for the farm it's a Browning lever action BLR in 243 with a red dot on it. 
I'm actually debating myself putting a one to four or one to six on it as I'm finding myself running into some longer range opportunities than I thought I would or there's times that I want to have that capability. I've got binoculars in a truck with me, but I think I'd enjoy the magnification more on the rifle. And I won't be taking any 300 shot, 300 yard shots with that thing, but I still kind of find myself wanting that different, that ability to see farther at those different ranges. So yeah, man, I think you're doing great with this. One to four on an AR pistol. It's, it's really up to you. Red dots help you acquire that target quicker, get on target faster, but if that's not kind of what you're looking for on that and you want to be able to get that magnification out there and see and still be able to shoot things that are up close with the one power, I say go for it, man. I think you'll be super happy with it and you're on the right path for it. So I hope this helps you out with your question, Pierce. Thanks, TSP. Thanks, everybody. Back to you, Jack. All right, so my segment today is on the subject of we don't know how big the denominator in the COVID equation is. But I've been saying it's five to ten times minimal. It could be much bigger than that, than we think that it is. And before I play a segment for you, I want you to think about as, as, as damning as this is. And I'm going to go through some additional numbers that are even more damning toward the overreaction that we've had to this thing. That, again, that doesn't mean there should be no reaction to this thing. It doesn't mean there shouldn't be any restrictions. It's just destroying the entire economy is probably a bad idea uh, in, in light of what you're about to hear. But even if you test a sample of people, let's say a few hundred people, and determine something like 36% of them have COVID, you still don't know the infection rate of that sample group. Well, of course you do. Okay, you're saying the the, sam the, the the test isn't accurate. Nope. I'm saying you have the most accurate test you can get your hands on, 36% test positive. You don't know the total infection rate of that group. Why? How many people had the virus last month, cleared the virus, and now test negative for the virus? You don't know. Again, you're using numbers instead of knowledge. So if we tested that sample group, And then we tested that sample group also for antibodies, and we put those two numbers together, then we'd have a pretty good idea of how many of those people had or have had COVID, and we'd know the actual infection rate of that segment. And then we can extrapolate some knowledge from that segment. So keep in mind we don't have that. Also keep in mind as you're about to listen to this, this is about a group of homeless people. Now, what have they told us about hospitalization and, and morbidity. And that is that underlying health conditions are a huge determining factor on how sick people get. The homeless population is not known for being, you know, people that largely abstain from the use of illegal substances that eat well and that are well nourished. Now, I would say one thing about the homeless population, they're generally not extremely obese. So maybe those two offset. But I'm going to say, on if anything here, you know, we need to put age into this and all, but the average homeless person is middle to late-aged male, and that's honest to God, guys. I know that's hard for you to accept, but it's true. Not all. I mean, I saw there was a woman, and yes, I know. The, the majority of the homeless in America are males over 30. I, 
Sorry if you don't like it. Sorry, but it's true. Okay? Um, so I think all of this offsets, and if anything, you would say that this segment of the population would be generally less healthy than the average American, with the exception of obesity, which is the largest comorbidity outside of age, we have to be backed out, because most homeless people are not obese. Even if they're heavy, they're not obese. Anyway, uh, listen to this, and I, I do think that somewhere along the line, through all of this, as you're listening to what you're about to hear, your lower jaw is just going to, uh, like, you're going to have to, like, take two hands and force your mouth closed when you realize how damning this really is, even though they try to spin it in a different way. Here you go. We've learned the city of Boston represents 15% of the coronavirus cases in Massachusetts, by far the highest. Boston 25 News reporter Drew Caritas has learned some of those cases came from a homeless shelter where no one had any symptoms. It's the first time an entire homeless shelter in the U.S. has been tested for the virus, and the results now being revealed from here in the South End are eye-opening. 146 positive cases, none had any symptoms. How much of the COVID virus is really being passed by people who don't even know they have it? At Pine Street Inn in Boston's South End, universal COVID-19 testing leading to new stunning evidence about the asymptomatic spread of the virus. It was like a double knockout punch because the number of positives was shocking to us. But then the fact that 100% of the positives had no symptoms was equally shocking. Dr. Jim O'Connell, president of Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program, says broad-scale testing was carried out at this shelter about a week and a half ago because of a small cluster of cases. The findings now actively being examined by the CDC, 146 positive cases, about 36% of the shelter's population, all asymptomatic. It probably, frankly, raises more questions than it answers. Pine Street President Lindia Downey says the results prove the previous screening method of only testing those showing symptoms to be ineffective. I think there are so many asymptomatic people right now that if we could do universal testing, the number may look close to this. I don't think we know. The universal testing at Pine Street Inn and testing of the homeless at BMC bringing Boston South End to number one in the city with the highest rate of COVID-19 infection. Marty Martinez, Boston's Chief of Health and Human Services, expects another big spike in the city's statistics in the coming days with more universal testing set to get started at other homeless shelters. But our goal is within the next three or four days to test everybody. We want them to be safe, and we don't want people to get transmitted virus. It's very infectious. Of the 146 people at Pine Street Inn who tested positive, health officials tell us only one needed hospital care, and many have not experienced any symptoms. In the South End, Drew Caritas, Boston 25 News. Okay, I want to temper my own words here, because I want to say some things that should be obvious, but they're, they're not. Number one, the idea of 36% out of this sample size, maybe representing the average number of people who are currently positive for COVID and are asymptomatic in a city like Boston or New York or Philadelphia is probably out of line. And the reason is all of these people were living fairly close quarters with each other um, and, and interacting with each other on a daily basis because most of these shelters, people don't stay at these shelters. They go in the shelter, out of the shelter, in the shelter, out of the shelter. So they come for the evening. So their infection rate is very high. 
But it's even higher than the Diamond Princess. Diamond Princess, these people were holed up on a ship, on and off for shore excursions, breathing the same air in the same rooms in fairly tight quarters with an infection rate of 20%. Don't draw too much from that. Because the conditions on the Diamond Princess obviously were probably better than a homeless shelter and probably a little less conducive to spread. So maybe the numbers work out uh, to being quite similar. But these people have been interacting with each other for a lot longer. And they already had gotten to that. And like on the Diamond Princess, one person showed up. Oh, shit, send everybody to the room, give them free cable, right? Uh, where this was more like this went on and on and on, and there was finally enough people that had some symptoms and they had a small cluster, and they, well, we better test everybody. So th the majority of these people would never, ever, ever have been tested. They would never be part of the official denominator, ever. Now, of those 146 people that tested positive, Um, they moved them all to temporary isolation facilities, and only one needed hospital care. And many continue to show no symptoms. I would love to know what the number of many is. Is many half? Is many three-quarters? On the Diamond Princess, it was four-fifths. It was 80%. I'm not going to use that number here because I don't know what the answer is. But I do know that we're 10 days into this now. And the, the time window there is such that it's likely that anybody needs to go to the hospital has gone to the hospital out of those 146 people, 10 days into the infection. So the, the person that, that, that tested positive that had it for the least amount of time had it for like a day. And, and, and maybe two because the viral load has to build up enough to even be there. I mean, this is one of the reasons the testing itself is not enough because if I test you today and clear you to go to work, I, I have to test you next Friday again to have any idea if you're infected now, especially with this knowledge of asymptomatic. But let's just use this number now. When we actually did a real sample size with testing of everybody and got 146, again, it's very hard to say, well, how many people then, what percentage of Dallas-Fort Worth has COVID, what percentage of New York City? We know that number is going to be very different because of population density. We got 10,000 square miles and, 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 and 7 million people. We got 300 square miles and 8 million people. You think you're going to have more in the New York City market? Sure. But what we know, see, remember knowledge, not just numbers, but knowledge, that 146 people got the virus and one went in the hospital. Now, the number that they use for the death rate of 2% and for all the hysteria is about 15% will require hospitalization, 85% will not and a total of about 2% will die. And that number's held pretty solid in the United States based on those numbers and our estimated denominator that we claim to be a real denominator. But what happens if we go to 1 in 146? 1 in 146 is 0.6%, 6 tenths of a percent. Now, there's no, there's no way we can argue that this didn't happen. This is better numbers than we have from anything else we've looked at. Now, it could get corrupted. What happens in the next seven days? Does another one, two, or three of those people end up in a hospital? If so, we have to change this. But it, it's long enough now, it doesn't look that way. And if we added one more person, 
we'd move to 1.2% hospitalization rate versus 15%. You see where this goes. When we do that, here's the other thing we can look at. These are numbers that we do know, we don't think we know. When people go to the hospital, about 8% of them die of COVID. So you got COVID, it got bad enough to go to the hospital. Right now, 92% clear and go home. Only 8% of people that, that get it, then get bad enough to go to the hospital, die. 8% seems like a big number, but it's 8% of 15%. You got it? 8% of 15%. If we don't do new math and we don't do common core and we actually work that out, that means that now we have a new number that's not 15% of people that get it go to the hospital, but 0.6% of the people that actually have it go to the hospital. Now, 8% of 0.6% is 0.07. Which means the real expected death rate, based on these numbers, which we can't say for sure, would hold across the median, but it would take the death rate from 2%-ish, not to the 0.7% that we have coming out of South Korea, etc., that's probably a more accurate number, but to 0.07%. The flu death rate is 0.1. Now, I know what you're thinking. None of this can possibly make sense because, well, look at New York. Look how many people are dying. Okay, it's again, it's about the total number of people that are infected. And that means you, you don't not do anything at all. That doesn't mean that you just go back to everybody going out to nightclubs and swap and spit on the dance floor with people that they met 15 minutes ago. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean you go back to giant, you know, huge events with people crammed in like rock concerts, bouncing off of each other for four hours, sweating, spitting on each other. It doesn't mean that you, you you jam fill sporting stadiums and and do all the sell all the seats and have everybody sitting next to each other, touching each other for three hours, watching a basketball game. It doesn't mean any of that. It does mean you got to take a little bit different view of how much you shut down and how you do things. And that you can't treat two places that are very different, like let's say Dallas, Fort Worth, and New York City, the same. Not if you're being rational and using knowledge versus just numbers for your decision making. And what it does mean that I'm going to tell you, I'm estimating somewhere between one and a half and two million people in New York City have or have had COVID. Those numbers, see, and I came up with those numbers based on intuition and the best knowledge I had over a week ago. That's the first time I publicly stated that specific number. One and a half to two million people was over a week ago. If you take these numbers and you back them into New York City and you don't go 36%, you just take the number that you see at the end relative to the population, the total number of people in the hospital, the total number of people dead, and you come from the other side backwards... So that's when you know math works, when it works in both directions of an equation. You get about one and a half to two million infections. You don't get 36%. You get about 20%, which is interesting since it's the number of inf on the Diamond Princess. I'm just saying, we got to start looking at this differently. 
And this I plan to reopen the country and all, I think it's a great idea. And I think some places need to move much faster than others. But I'm going to tell you something that's counterintuitive. You may see by summer New York City having less problems than a place like Dallas-Fort Worth. And I know you might be like, what? wait, what? Population density moves faster. If it moves faster, it clears faster. The whole point of flattening the curve is to not overwhelm the healthcare system. The danger of flattening the curve is you extend the duration of the problem. Well, there's more than one way a curve gets flattened. See, again, we're making decisions on numbers versus knowledge. You will flatten a curve by having an epidemic in Dallas-Fort Worth that spreads by the mechanism that COVID does versus having it in New York City. If both people, if both sides do nothing, the curve will be flatter in Dallas-Fort Worth because we have natural, innate social distancing because there's less of us in the same amount of space. Duh! But... Everything I've said about this, with this bullshit of people doing mental gymnastics to get the death rate to 7% is nonsense, and the fact that this 2% rate was nonsense. Now, what they're spinning, if you heard it in that story, is, well, this is really bad. This is really bad because there's people walking around transmitting this virus to other people that don't know they're sick. Duh. That's what, that's what people with common sense have been saying the whole time. You think you're containing this. You're not. Now, this will be the, 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 the Gestapo will be like, well, now we just need to lock everybody down. No, you don't. No, you don't. What you need to do is figure out who is most at risk here and protect them. And again, I'm going to say this. I do not believe that the health of the homeless population is better than the health of the average American. Especially if we take away the people that are riding around on rascal scooters. Not because they have a bad hip, but because they weigh too much to walk. And I don't want anybody to die. But we can clearly identify the groups that are the most at risk, protect them, and if they're supposed to be working or something and they can't, and they legitimately are in a high-risk group, We can say, okay, here, we'll pay you to stay home, but let's let the economy run so that when, when this is over, maybe you clean your life up if it's a lifestyle disease, or maybe you just, you know, you do what you can with what you have if it's just what life handed you. But there's something for you to come back to, because something that people need to understand here. If you do this long enough, at this level, the government can send you all the money you want, and you ain't going to have no food to come to your house. At some point, we have to accept reality and accept that this, on some levels, is a war, whether we wanted it or not. The enemy's coming, whether and this invisible enemy shit that's used for propaganda, that's not what I'm talking about here. We do need to think about this in a wartime footing. You're going to war with another country. They have the ability to bomb your nation. Some people are going to die. You don't shut down your economy. You don't tell everybody to go in a hole in the ground and wait till it's over. You have to keep things running so there's a country worth having. There are people that are so economically illiterate in this that they literally think we can shut down for 18 months, that that's even doable. The reason I've said it's never going to happen isn't because there aren't policy wonks that want to do it. It's because people won't let it happen. There is a point, and it, we're starting to see it, 
where if government doesn't do this in a, in a way that makes some sense, people just say, no, I'm not doing it anymore. And if it's two or three people, then the government can come beat them over the head, spray them with mace, tase them, beat the shit out of them, drag them off a bus and take them to jail, and create a whole bunch of social interaction that never had to happen. But when it's millions of people, just say, no, we're done. We are done. There, there is a reason that government seeks compliance from people because without it, they are impotent in many ways. And then the government itself, I, I keep saying this, they don't want you locked up. Now I'm starting to question some of these people like Governor Gretchen, but overall the totality of government wants you as a good milk cow on the tax line having your tits pulled for, for financial milk in the form of taxation. And they want you spending for economic activity. That's how they maintain their power apparatus. They want the economy open back up. They also don't want to lose their cushy jobs because too many people, the number gets too big. That makes people unhappy and they lose their cushy jobs and get voted out of office. And some of them, I think, legitimately want to save lives. For all the shit I give Orange Man, I think Trump is trying to save American lives. He's also trying to save the American economy. And people that think those are two different things are stupid. You are stupid if you think saving the economy is not saving lives. If our economy was in the condition that it's in, for any reason other than a virus, there would be people marching down the street of Pennsylvania Avenue to drag Trump out of the White House and hang him from a tree and set him on fire. Because he's letting people die because the economy's going down. There, again, to understand this dynamic of how people are this easily controlled by something like this, that when we see the real numbers is not the death sentence that we've had it made out to be. In us, in our hearts and souls, in our ancient ancestral memories, are things like smallpox, cholera epidemics, typhus epidemics before we understood how to understand uh, to deal with them, and things like the Black Plague that killed a third of the population of the planet. We have those memories coded into our genetics. We are the descendants of survivors of those things. There is a deep primal fear of illness and plague and pandemic in the human individual. It exists in you. No matter how well you fight it, no matter how much you use logic against it, it exists in you. If you've never been vaccinated for smallpox, or if it was a very, very long time ago and you were a small child and I had you in a room and I was wearing a hazmat suit and I held up a vial of thing that said small, even if one in there, just some goo in there that you thought maybe was, yellow goo, and it said smallpox culture and I threatened to hurl it on the ground, how would you feel in your stomach when I did that? The way this is controlling people and people allowing things that don't make any logical sense to happen and then defending them is that. Think of yourself in that room right now. I'm in a hazmat suit. I have a jar. It says smallpox cultures. I'm about to break it off the wall two feet from your head. How do you feel? That's it. That's the control mechanism. That's the control mechanism. And that's why people are defending things like a moron saying you can go to the you can go to Walmart and buy groceries, but you can't walk to that aisle over there and get a garden hose or a bag of fertilizer while you're at it for your garden. As bad as it is, there's people defending that stupidity. 
That's why people are defending the stupidity of, well, if you have two houses, you can't drive to your own other house in your own car by yourself. That doesn't make any sense. There's literally no way that that makes any medical or scientific sense or logical sense at all. But people defend it because they've been convinced. You're going to kill grandma, and we're all going to get killed. We're all going to die. Because even when everybody says, well, it's really the elderly and those, you still have 29-year-old Karen thinking, but it'll get me. It'll get me. You know what? It may get you. Every time you put your socks on and walk out the door, you risk something getting you. You can fall down the stairs. You can Every time you go to a hospital, you risk dying. The number one cause of death in America, if we want to be really honest about it, is medical errors. If it's not the number, it's a damn near the top of the list of actual causes of death. It, especially when we add medical errors, including properly prescribed medications and procedures that are done properly and still result in death because, you know, that that 2% death during this elective surgery statistic over a couple million people, just like COVID, adds up. Every time you get a car, you risk dying. 30 to 40,000 people a year die in cars. Every year, every time you get in a car, your odds of dying in a car wreck are statistically higher than dying of COVID right now. But the car you have perceived control over, you've been told there's all types of things in the car to make you safe, yet we still have 33, 34,000 people a year dying it, sometimes more. But you don't have an ancestral memory of a car wreck. You have an ancestral memory of a black death, and it's being used against you right now. Please don't allow it to be. That doesn't mean be stupid. That doesn't go mean go start licking toilet seats. But it does mean don't be afraid to take back whatever piece of your life you're able to take back as we begin to transition to something that looks a little bit more normal. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it today. Um, with that, I just want to remind you, you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Uh, my item of the day today are the General Hydroponics Rapid Rooter Grow Plugs. Uh, this is for your hydroponic and aquaponic systems, whether you're doing it to grow food out or just using it for seed starting for your garden and things like that. I Every time I run a new set of starts, I become more of a fan of this product. Um, they end up being about 30 cents a piece, but I've determined that unless if you're growing things that don't have huge root systems, like if you're growing basil and, and lettuces, you're harvesting young, arugula, you're harvesting young and all, you can totally you know cut the plant, pull the roots off, throw them in some peroxide and water, you know about one third peroxide, two thirds water. I'm talking regular plain Jane peroxide, uh, and to uh, to sanitize them and use them again. I've got some I've used three times now. I don't. I wouldn't say plan on getting them all to be reused, but I'll tell you the ones I always reuse. When I have a failure to germinate, that sucker goes in peroxide and water, and I always reuse that one. Anyway, um, even at thirty cents a piece, when you're starting plants with them that sell for about three dollars a plant, uh, it's a it's just not a not an issue at all. Um, a lot of people use rockwell and things like that. I think there's a lot of different medium we can use, but guys, these things work. And I'll tell you a way to save money if you really, really want to, where you don't have to reuse them. Cut them in half. Cut them in half, like, across the center, not long ways where they're skinny, 
And then they're just smaller and they'll still work and maybe set a little couple pieces of lava rock or something below them to lift them a little higher in the cup if that's what you want to do. Um, that's a way I don't I haven't done it but a couple times to see if it worked and it worked, you know? So with that, let's go ahead and uh, and wrap things up. Again, song of the day this week. We're doing a Jimmy Buffett week because I felt like it. And uh, I'm trying to do five songs by Jimmy Buffett that you probably, probably being a keyword, never heard. I think some of y'all heard this one, even if you're not a big Jimmy Buffett fan, if you listen to this show regularly, because I'm pretty sure I've, this is the one I'm pretty sure I've played before. But I thought it was a great song for right now for so many reasons. It's called It's My Job. And it was on Beach House on the Moon, which is a new album for Buffett anyway. It's not real new, but it's new for, you know, a guy that had all, all his three hits in the 70s. It's a newer album. Uh, it's also a really great album. It's probably one of his best albums, you know, that's, that's newer stuff. Um, a lot of great songs on it. Some really cool covers like Pacing the Cage, which I think Bill Cochran or Bill, somebody like that originally did. Um, really great cover of that. Um, lots of great stuff on it. This is one of my favorite songs on it. It's one of these songs that just kind of sounds fun and happy and doesn't seem real deep, but it's really, really deep. The, the narrative starts out with he's not really happy with his life, and he's out on the street, and a guy sweeping the street, a sweet sweeper comes by, and he's bouncing and happy with every step. And when he asks him, you know, why are you so happy? He said, because this is my job. This is what I'm supposed to do. And you might think, how does a person that sweeps the street be happy? Well, do they have the things that a person needs to be happy? Let's say that person makes a decent living, and they've balanced their life so that they have what they want at home. They're not trying to figure out how to pay their bills. And they actually understand that the job that they do is a valuable service. It is something that makes people's life better. And they have people around them that care about them and love them. Why wouldn't that person be happy? The alternative in this story is an uncle who's a self-made millionaire banker who's miserable, and it's his job to basically be miserable. It's in his contract. There's a clause in his contract that says he's, he has to be worried half to death. And he has no people around him, and he's miserable. And then it ends with the narrative being that Jimmy realizes that his job is to get up on the stage and make people feel good when he plays his music. And he's rich as shit. He's way richer than the uncle character, who may or may not actually exist. So you can be poor or wealthy and be happy. It's about having the things that you want. But I think there's a whole new way to look at this right now. And those of you who are sitting at home instead of doing your job might understand it. And many people that are still doing your job may be able to, with empathy, understand it as well, in a way that you wouldn't have before. How many people really didn't like their job, but boy, they want to go back? And they're starting to realize it's not just because of the income, because many people are sitting at home with as much or more income right now. But they still want to go back to work. I mean, don't get me wrong, some don't. But some do. Why? Because they're starting to realize that they draw a sense of purpose and meaning from their work. That they, Even though they work for money, and maybe they would do something else with the time if they had the money, they still draw a sense of purpose. So I think many of us are going to go back to work eventually and have a totally different attitude about our jobs in a very positive way. And then let's end with the converse. 
What if you're realizing now, and only now, how much you really hated your job? And what if you know it's highly likely that as the economy opens back up, that it's going to be difficult right away with the economy in retraction for you to take and go do something else right away. But you probably will get your job back. Now what? I think you look for something that makes you feel like the street sweeper or Jimmy Buffett. And you don't stop looking just because it gets hard. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. I didn't know what about, but I was feeling quite disturbed. A street sweeper came a-whistling by, he was bouncing every step. It seemed strange how good he felt, so I asked him while he swept. He said, it's my job to be cleaning up this mess, and that's enough reason to go for me. It's my job to be better than the rest, and that makes a day for me. I got an uncle who owns a bank, he's a self-made millionaire. He never had anyone to love, never had no one to care. He always seemed kind of sad to me, and I asked him why that was. And he told me it's because in my contract there's this clause. That says it's my job to be worried after death And that's the thing people respect in me It's my job, but without it I'd be less than what I expect from me Now I've been lazy most all my life Writing songs and sleeping late And any manual labor I've done was purely by mistake. If street sweepers can smile, then I've got no right to feel upset. But sometimes I still forget till the lights go on and the stage is set and the song hits home and you feel that sweat. It's my job to be different than the a reason to go for me It's my job To be better than the best And that's a rough break for me It's my job To be cleaning up this mess And that's enough a reason to go for me It's my job To be better than the best And that makes the day for me